Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. For the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hail insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. 
Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Well, Christine, thank you very much uh, indeed. And if you could keep that Psalm 22 open in front of you, uh, that would be very helpful. But before we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts and minds uh, this evening. Um, Open our hearts and minds to the truth about the world uh, we live in. And uh, we pray that also you would have mercy on us and open our hearts and minds to the grace and mercy that comes uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by uh, taking you back to, all the way back to 1983, uh, and a beach on the Atlantic coast of France, and uh, me uh, watching someone being dragged out of the surf. And the paramedics arrived, uh, but they were unable to save him. It was my very first direct encounter with death, and I was aged uh, 15. Uh, we do live in a really, really unusual time in history. Uh, in, our, in our corner of the world, at least, uh, we're so prosperous, so medically advanced, it's possible to go for 15 years, or longer, in fact, without a face-to-face encounter with the reality of death. You know, so it's possible today, in our particular culture, to forget about death for long stretches of time, to ignore it. And it does occur to me that there may, there may just be some here tonight uh, who are Tonight, like I was, never really having had to face up to death uh, in all its fullness and all its agony. Uh, I can imagine someone who's perhaps been coming for a few weeks and um, maybe their only real engagement with death, thinking about death at all, has been here on a Sunday. Uh, All week long they're saying to themselves, um, well, you know, this is something I hardly ever think about at all. And then I come here. And uh, maybe tonight you're, you're asking yourself, well, I wonder what's on the menu tonight. Oh, it's death again. Great. Just like last week. And perhaps to you it feels weird and uncomfortable for week after week to be sort of engaging with this. Perhaps you're not sure that you like it. Well, let me warn you in advance, tonight's going to be uh, no exception. Tonight, this psalm is going to draw us into a very intimate encounter with death. Now, things have not always been this way, of course. In the vast majority of history, people have lived very close to the reality of death every day, and that's true in many parts of the world uh, today as well, of course. But take a man who's, uh, who was called Samuel Rutherford. Uh, back in the 17th century, Samuel Rutherford, was a, a, he was a slightly quirky Puritan, but he wrote great pastoral letters, and he was himself very well acquainted with death. His uh, first two children died, uh, and then his wife died, uh, left him very deeply wounded. Uh, He then married again and had seven more children, uh, which sounds good, but only one of them survived to adulthood. It's hardly imaginable today, isn't it, to go through that kind of experience as a a husband or or a father. So that was Samuel Rutherford. Uh, But it allowed him to write great letters to those who were also suffering from grief. Just listen to this. This is his description of what it's like. It's it's from part of a letter to a a woman whose 18-year-old daughter has just died. And uh, he says this. He says, your daughter was a part of yourself. 
So naturally you, being as it were cut in half, will indeed be grieved. It's a very powerful description, isn't it? Cut in half by death. And it's quite a common description um, for those who have been through the experience. I heard a grieving father say exactly the same kind of thing uh, not so long ago. He said this, it's not like an illness you recover from. It's like an amputation you have to live with. And I know for sure this evening that I'm speaking to some people who have experienced the reality of death just like that. Some even now who are experiencing it, who are right in the middle of it. And this is already a part of who you are. It will always be a part of who you are. Uh, You need to forgive me if the very subject matter uh, tonight opens up wounds for you. Uh, But in many ways, this is about the rest of us those who haven't had such a close experience. It's about the rest of us joining you. It's about joining you in an awareness of the experience of death. If I could, if I could put it this way, it's, uh, it's you who actually have the true perspective on things, what the world is really like, what life is really like, and the rest of us need to join you. And Psalm 22 is going to help us. It's going to help us with that. Uh, we're going to look at this wonderful psalm in two parts this evening. First, we're going to look at this, this psalm uh, just as it is. It's very tempting, really tempting for a preacher with this psalm to jump ahead to how the gospel writers uh, quote from uh, this psalm uh, about, the new, about Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, we, will do, we will be doing that, but we're going to hold back a little to begin with so we can learn from David, the author of this psalm, how to face up to the reality of death. Why on earth would we want to do that? You might wonder, well, then we'll be in a much better place to see how this psalm speaks so powerfully of the death and resurrection of Jesus and how in him we can see our death taken by another. That's going to be the extraordinary thing we're going to be reminded of this evening. Uh, But first things first, first we stand with David, uh, sharing in his encounter with death. This is David recounting uh, a, a, a close brush with death of some sort. And uh, joining in with him allows us to experience it too. It's our first point this evening. With David, face up to the reality of death. So I want, what I want for us all this evening, to face up to death and to, to be able to cry out to God, to be able to articulate our emotional response to, to death, if you like. And this psalm will help us do that. Uh, you might have noticed as Christine read it that it was the psalm roughly falls into two parts. Uh, the first part is what we might roughly call lament. And it's David is crying out to God in the face of his close encounter with death. He's, he's pouring out his pain, his, his resentment, his, his confusion. Um, as he does that, he's struggling to rekindle his confidence in the Lord. He's also crying out for deliverance. And he does it, you will have noticed, all with an almost brutal honesty. That's the the first 21 verses of of the psalm. Uh, And only then, in fact, does he feel ready to praise God in the hymn of thankful praise that runs uh, from verse 22 to the end. Now we'll come back to that thankful praise uh, later. For now, let's just simply learn from David to face up to the reality of death. And first of all, let's learn from David's brush with death that what death is like and how to articulate before God what death is like, what it feels like. 
And I think we'll see there are three parts to David's experience. Take a look first at the, the loneliness of death in the first couple of verses. This is famously how the psalm begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. David goes on to say he's crying out day and night, getting no answer. This is a big part of what death is like. An encounter with death is like. It's profoundly lonely. And I'm not just talking about dying apart from the people that you love. That's uh, one of our greatest fears, of course, and uh, one of our greatest fears for those we know. But even if you are surrounded by family and friends at the moment of death, still death is going to be a lonely experience. You see, they might be, they might be with you before the moment of death, but they can't be with you at the moment of death. They can't be with you. At that moment, at that moment you're on your own. Uh, The French philosopher Pascal understood this uh, very well indeed. Uh, We are fools to depend upon the society of others, he wrote. Wretched as we are, powerless as we are, they will not aid us. We shall die alone. We shall die alone. And uh, David understood that. Uh, But he also understood that right at the heart of, of that profound loneliness is the is that feeling of being deserted by God. God, of course, is the one who gave us life in the first place. He's the one who's more than capable of keeping us alive. And at that moment, he is letting us go. Which is why David cries out as he does here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so built into David's uh, despair, we find confusion, we find anger, we find bitterness. David's saying to the Lord, you've abandoned me. Why have you abandoned me? It's it's a complaint. It's an accusation. Uh, I wonder, would you dare dare to speak to God like that? We, We might assume that if we feel angry towards God, it'd be better to keep it to ourselves. Well, David didn't feel any such inhibitions. Out it pours. And then, remarkably, he set it to music and uh, got his people to speak to God like that over and over and over again. But loneliness and complaint aren't the only emotions David encourages us to bring before the Lord through this psalm. Uh, Take a look next at the the shame and indignity of death. The shame and indignity of death. This is in the next wave of laments, verses 6 to 8. Let me pick out verse 6, for example. This is what David says. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. This is what death is like. Death is steeped in shame. Now, for David, it was a very kind of public shame. We don't know the exact circumstances in which David wrote this, uh, what it was that brought him so close uh, to death. Uh, But take the time that uh, King David was forced from the throne uh, to flee from his son Absalom. Uh, No doubt his, his, his enemies at that moment loved it as the great king had to run for his life. 
And it wouldn't be at all surprising if at that moment David felt not like a king at all, not even like a man, more like a worm, that kind of tiny worm that infests rotting food, that kind of indignity, that kind of shame. Now, not all death involves such kind of public shame and mockery, thankfully. But we are seeing another universal characteristic of death here. And it's, there's, there is no such thing as a good death. There's no such thing as a glorious death, not on the, on the battlefield, not anywhere. There's no such thing as a dignified death, not in a clinic in Switzerland, not anywhere. And the pilot episode of the TV series House, uh, Dr. Gregory House uh, replies to a patient who's just said to him, I just want to die with dignity. And uh, his response is very, very good, I think, very accurate. He says, there is no such thing. Our bodies break down. Sometimes when we're 90, sometimes before we're even born, but it always happens and there's never any dignity in it. It's always ugly, always. You can live with dignity, you can't die with it. And in, in that instance, at least Gregory House was absolutely right. And there will be some of us, again, I, I know tonight, you'll know this firsthand. And I felt how deeply uh, distressing and disturbing Uh, It can be. But there's a third characteristic of death here. Take a look finally at the terror of death. The terror of death. It's the third wave of David's uh, lament before the Lord. Verses 11 through to 18. Let me pick out verse 14. These are very rich and powerful words. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. This is what death is like. It's terrifying. His mouth goes dry with fear. He feels like God has left him in the dust to die. Now the death that David was facing was a a violent death. People were behaving like animals in their violence towards him. You can see it here. It felt like being encircled or surrounded by wild animals out to attack and kill. Bulls, lions, wild dogs. Again, not all death involves violence, thankfully. But again, we're seeing another universal characteristic of death. It's simply frightening, terrifying, even if not violent. Uh, many of us here, I imagine, myself included, are even quite frightened at the thought we, we might be full of so much fear at the moment of death. That's even though we know that in Christ there's, there's no need to, to be frightened at that moment, as we'll think about in a moment. But it is likely to be frightening. And the fear of death really shouldn't surprise us. I can, I can remember being aged about 12 or 13, visiting my my granddad in hospital shortly after he'd had a, a heart attack. And uh, my granddad was a very, very self-confident man. But I, what I remember very vividly from that visit was just how suddenly frightened he was, terrified. It was very surprising, quite shocked me. Should we be surprised by that kind of fear? Well, no, David would say, that's what death is like. That's what death is like. This is what death is like. It's, it's lonely. 
It's undignified and it's terrifying. David, if we've never faced up to it before, helps us to face up to it. And if we have faced it before, he helps us to articulate it. He helps us to pour out our pain before the Lord. This is a reminder of where we're all heading, whether we like it or not, no matter how hard we work to distract ourselves from the truth. And uh, let me be very blunt with you this evening. If you, if you don't have a, a saving relationship uh, with the living God, uh, this is where it ends for you. This is as far as you can go with this psalm. At this point for you, the psalm is over. It can put into words for you the harsh reality of death, but then has nothing more to say. Now, if, it's that, if that is you, I, I do hope, really do hope that you won't leave it there. And, and even if you would describe yourself as a, a Christian here tonight, I, I hope you want to see how this works out, or at least I hope you want to be reminded how this all works out. Because one thing that's very obvious from the psalm is that facing death sure ain't going to be easy. It's just not going to be easy. And we need all the reminding and all the encouragement we, we can get to face it. And in the parts of the psalm that we haven't looked at yet, uh, I think we'll see David pointing us in the right direction, at least, to find some real answers. But in the end, only in the right direction. We will have to look beyond this psalm for a complete answer. Now, you can see and hear David pointing us in the right direction even as early as verse four of the psalm. So verse four, he's reminding himself, he's kindling his faith in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. And he's reminding himself of what the Lord is like. Remembering the Lord, encouraging us to remember him too. He's trying to, to think straight at this moment to persuade himself, rekindling his confidence and trust. Or I'll take a look, for example, at verses 19 to 21. It's one of two places in, in the psalm where, where David prays, he, where he asks the Lord for something. He, and here he's crying out for deliverance. Verse 20, for example. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. And uh, that's a great thing to be encouraged to do, isn't it? To, to pray like that. And, and to pray like that points us to, to the only one who, who possibly could deliver us from death. We could also turn to the final verses of the psalm. That's the kind of thankful praise we find from verse 22 onwards. Uh, that would point us to the one who in this instance actually answered David's prayer and did indeed deliver his life from the sword. So David just had a brush with death. He didn't actually die in that instance and was then able to write this psalm for us. Except that I still don't think we're in quite the best place to join in wholeheartedly with that kind of adoration and thanks. See, although David has been very helpful, sharing our pain, helping us to articulate it, helping us to pray for help. He's been helpful, but he can't, he can't help us with the underlying problem here. He, of course, really can't help us with death itself. After all, even he died in the end. And as the Apostle Peter reminded the people at Pentecost, he died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. And so we can find no solution to death in him. 
Now, you know where this heading, if you call yourself Christian here tonight, you know where this heading. It is only in Jesus that we can find a solution to that problem. It's only in Jesus that we can really begin to turn to thanks and praise. This is our second and final point this evening. David's helped us to face the reality of death, but this is the amazing thing that we can see in Jesus. In Jesus, see your death taken by another. This is extraordinary. In Jesus, you can see your death taken by another person and then, of course, you can give voice to some very, very thankful praise. Now, as I've said so far, our encounter with this psalm has been useful, but more than a little disturbing. We have uh, each one of us, I think, been taken forward to, to the moment of our own death for each of us here tonight. It's like someone has, if you like, pressed the fast forward button on our lives. Uh, for some of us, I guess, that's not going to take us very far into the future. Uh, for others, perhaps a little further. But we all end up in the same place, the place of fear, the place of shame and indignity, the place of profound loneliness. And facing up to that in inevitable future now does, I think, feel like being part of an, a nightmare. But I wonder if you've ever had that experience in dreams where the perspective uh, suddenly shifts, uh, the point of view shifts. Usually, of course, as a character in a dream, we experience things from a, from a first point first-person point of view. But just occasionally, we see ourselves as a character in the dream from the outside, from a third-person point of view. Uh, at least um, that's my experience in dreams. I'm, I'm suddenly wondering now whether that's just me for which that happens, and uh, maybe I'm talking complete nonsense and no one else has had that experience. Maybe it's just me. But anyway, just bear with me. Imagine that that's true. If that is true, that shift from first-person to third-person well, something very similar happens when we think about this psalm in the light of Jesus. Yes, it does articulate an experience of death for us. Yes, it does fast forward us to the moment of our own death. But when we read this psalm trusting in Jesus, an extraordinary thing happens. The perspective shifts to the third person. It's true, I'm still seeing my death but it's not being me being consumed by the terror of death. It's Jesus. It's not me bearing the shame of death. It's Jesus. It's not me crying out in the desperate loneliness of death anymore. It's Jesus. And as we finish tonight, I just want to show you how that, how that works by, by thinking through how the gospel writers in the New Testament very, very carefully quote from this Psalms. They recount the death of Jesus. Now, it'll be helpful for you to know that all the gospel writers link Jesus to, to, to David, the author of this Psalm. Uh, Jesus is like David, but greater. He's the son of God, no less, who, who came to win a greater battle uh, for us than David ever did against death itself, as we've, we've been thinking about that over the last few weeks as we've been engaging with these Psalms. And, and to do that, to have, to have that victory over death, Jesus said, he told his disciples, that he must suffer and die before finding new life for himself and for others. 
Uh, so he let himself be arrested and, and tried unjustly and sentenced to be executed on a Roman cross. Uh, most of us will know that story, that history. But now work with me uh, from the middle of the psalm backwards and um, let's witness Jesus literally unraveling death for us. Uh, we're going to start at verse 18. Uh, Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. They crucified him. And the gospel writers tell us that at the foot of the cross, the soldiers divided his garments among them and cast lots for his clothing. All that kind of cold indifference the hatred and fear associated with death. They, they had turned their backs upon the Lord who was uh, naked on the cross and just caring about his garments. All that indignity, all that shame, he took it. Then uh, look back with me at verses seven to eight, what happened next. Those who passed by watching all of this mocked him they hurled insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. All of that shame and indignity of death, he bore it. All of the terror associated with death, he took it. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land and until three in the afternoon. It was the darkness of the, the shadow of death, the judgment and curse of God against sinful humanity. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the psalm, verse one. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing in that moment the full force of the God-forsaken loneliness of death. And then he died. In other words, what the gospel writers are doing are showing Jesus, taking upon himself everything that David faced in this psalm. The shadow of death, which overshadows us all because in sin we have turned away from the life-giving God. Well, on the cross, he took it upon himself. He took David's cry of God-forsaken mortality upon his own lips so that we don't have to. So that if we trust him, if we cling to him, if our faith is in him, it means that at the moment of death, he takes our mortality upon himself so that we can travel through death to life beyond and uh, join with the praise at the end of this psalm forever. We might still feel the loneliness we might still feel you know, the shame. We might still feel the fear. But the reality will be, by faith, our mortality is taken from us. So let me go back to the beginning, to that Atlantic beach in 1983. It's my first sight of death. How should I have processed that? I didn't process it the right way at the time. I just found it horrifying. Should I have time to try to repress it, ignore it? No, because if I were to ignore it, I'd never 
get to see the world as it truly is, as, you know, because it is a world under the shadow of death. That's the reality. It's the world's dirty little secret, you might say. And, and also it would mean that the choice that faces all of us would remain hidden to me. Because we've seen tonight that that choice is very stark. Very stark. Either at the moment of death, which is coming to all of us, at the moment of death, I cry out with the words of verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, Jesus Christ them for me. That's the choice. That's the op- those are the options. And those two options are as clear for you as they are for me. So which is it to be? But if we do know that Jesus has taken our God-forsaken mortality upon himself, I, I hope you can see tonight just how important it is to keep remembering it as we encounter death all around us, as we face up to our own deaths, so increasingly the older we get. Uh, we're going to be doing that tonight as we take the Lord's Supper together. But before we come to that, let me take you back to Samuel Rutherford. And I remember he was, he was writing to a, a woman whose 18-year-old daughter had just died, uh, explaining why. She, and the words that Rutherford uses is to, is to describe it. You know, she, she, of course she feels cut in half by the experience of that death. But this is what Rutherford went on to say. He said, but you have to rejoice Uh, You might well be cut in half, but when a part of you is on earth, that means a great part of you is already glorified in heaven. Or to put it in terms of Psalm 22, her daughter was already singing the final part of this psalm in heaven. Those words of thankful praise that will echo through all eternity. And because we've got those words uh, too, and because we know Jesus, the amazing thing is that even now, even now, even tonight, we can join in that rejoicing, even if it is through tears of grief. So let's do just that. Let me uh, finish with a prayer based on uh, this thankful praise that we find at the end of Psalm 22. And uh, then we're going to continue to to rejoice with thankful praise in song. Let's pray together first. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, uh, we shall declare your name to one another. In this congregation, we shall praise you. O Lord, you have not despised or disdained our suffering and affliction. You have listened to our cry for help. And you have answered us in Christ Jesus, who's taken all that suffering and affliction upon himself, even the curse and shadow of death. And we rejoice in it tonight. Neither rich nor poor can keep themselves alive, but you, O Lord, can do it. You have done it. And the news of that, the gospel news of that, will reverberate through the generations and into eternity. And they, we, will proclaim your righteousness to a people yet unborn, for you have done it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.